Hello, and welcome to Previously Unknown, a podcast from Independent 20th Century that reframes and reevaluates what we think we know about contemporary art. We are pleased to welcome three very special guests to talk about Andy Warhol's portraits, the subject of a solo show at Independent 20th Century, presented by Vito Schnabel Gallery. Moderated by Michael Dayton Herman, artist and director of licensing, marketing, and sales at the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts, with curator of this exhibition, Bob Colicello, writer, curator, and photographer, and Donna DeSalvo, DIA Art Foundation's Senior Adjunct Curator of Special Projects and Curator of Andy Warhol, From A to B and Back Again, the recent retrospective at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. We are in for an illuminating discussion which took place at the fair on Friday, September 11th, 2023. We hope you enjoy today's show. Thank you to Elizabeth D. and the entire team at The Independent. It is a pleasure to be here with Bob and Donna, and thank you all for joining us. Uh, I expect this will be a very lively, engaging, and uh, fun conversation about Warhol's commissioned portraits. I will open with a quote by Warhol. He said, Being good in business is the most fascinating kind of art. He's certainly known for blurring the boundaries between art and commerce, And he really challenged us to see the world differently. We're all challenged the idea of what an artist is and what an artist can be. He pursued a multitude of endeavors from interview magazine, films, television shows. He wrote a number of books during his lifetime. His last public appearance was as a model at a runway show with Miles Davis. And of course, he made terrific art that has withstood the test of time and continues to inspire generations today. He was a nonconformist, and he just challenged us to see the world differently. In this sense, I think these commissioned portraits really remind us of the power of Warhol as a conceptual artist. They certainly helped finance many of the terrific endeavors that Bob was involved with at the uh, Andy Warhol factory, but they also had a conceptual power to them, and they were part of a larger, more ambitious idea that Warhol had that was never realized. And he shared that idea with you, Bob, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what this larger idea was which utilized the commissioned portraits. Well, you know, the thing about Andy and the commissioned portraits is he was quite flexible in wanting to please the clients and would ask them what colors they liked. And, of course, during the Polaroid process, You know, they would say, Andy, I like this one. Please don't use that one. You know, so there was an exchange. But he was very rigid about the size. Occasionally, clients would say, I'd like 36 by 36 inches instead of 40 by 40 because my fireplace, whatever. Others wanted a little larger. And Andy was like, no, it has to be 40 by 40. So one day I asked him, you know, why does it always have to be 40 by 40? He said, because someday, Bob, I want every portrait, I want one panel of every person I painted all put together in one big painting that all lock into each other. And I want to call it Portrait of Society, and I would like it to be at the Metropolitan Art Museum. So he he saw it as part of a whole larger project. And uh, Andy's idea of society was not just families who came over on the Mayflower or British aristocrats. It was a, a global new kind of society, which is 
yes, there were some titled aristocrats. There were also heads of state ranging from Golda Meir to the Shah of Iran to Willy Brandt of West Germany to Jimmy Carter and Ted Kennedy. But there were also athletes, society ladies, artists, and Andy exchanged portraits with Rauschenberg, Lichtenstein, Joseph Boys, Armand, on and on. The commission portraits... Uh, are not sort of side side works or minor works because Andy didn't choose to paint those particular people. They came to him. They really, for him, painting people, doing portraits was what he did, you know, starting with Marilyn and Liz and Elvis, and and this was just a continuation. And he took, he he made that work with, you know, as seriously as he made any other work, but of course acting like he wasn't being serious at all. That, you know, that was Andy's thing, to be very flippant about his own work and his own importance. That's terrific, and in, in so many ways I think it's also subversive that uh, these people were commissioning portraits, and unbeknownst to them, they were also participating in this larger idea that Andy had. Donna, your exhibition at the Whitney really centered these portraits as an incredibly important part of Warhol's body of work in this retrospective. It was brilliantly done on the ground floor, this all-encompassing exhibition surrounded on all four walls of, with dozens of commissioned portraits. How do you see these portraits in relationship to all of Warhol's work, having curated the retrospective? Well, you know, it's interesting because when we began the project, you know, I felt it was very important to have the portraits in the exhibition. And although really in the course of working on the exhibition, a sort of gained a new appreciation for the portraits of the 70s and 80s, which, you know, when they had been shown at the Whitney in 79, long before I was there, they were trashed. I mean, they were just terrible reviews in the New York Times. And, um, you know, kudos to the Whitney because it was the museum in New York that really supported Warhol more than any other institution. But, you know, the reality is that the trajectory of portraiture begins way back in the 50s and and really continues all the way through, you know, whether it was, you know, Warhol, when he worked as a shoe illustrator for I Miller shoes, he was the sole illustrator from 55 to 57. He became known for the shoes and he began to do these shoe collages, these personality shoes, some of which were commissioned. So, you know, you had like Leo Lerman from Vogue or Gene Moore, who was the display director at Tiffany's. But then you also had Elvis Presley. You know, these were ones he did on his own or Mae West, sort of gay icons. So, you know, really in every decade, portraiture is there. And so, you know, I think this it's not a new thing. But, you know, the reality of portraiture within contemporary art is a whole other deal. I mean, it's seen, you know, as something I mean. Obviously, the 19th century, the idea of commission portrait is nothing new in the history of art. But in the 60s and into the 70s and 80s, I mean, no one was doing portraiture in the kind of serious art world. And so, you know, Warhol just kind of was doing his thing. And then the other thing is that that room, I went back to look because, you know, you forget these things sometimes. So the earliest portrait was from 1969. And it was of Jermaine McGeggy, who was a, a curator and a muse to Dominique Debonil in Houston. And she commissioned this portrait, which he, Andy, and I don't know if it was his decision or how, but it's in the style of Man Ray. It's a solarized portrait. Mm. 
And, you know, that would be in keeping with Mrs. Demonil and their great surrealist collection. And so to see these works from 69 and all the way up, I think Dolly Parton was at the very end. She was the one who drove us crazy because <laughs> she wasn't 40 by 40. And when it arived, it was like 42 uh, by 42. I wasn't and, there. And we were like, oh, my God, the grid, what are we going to do? And it's like, well, we're just going to go for it because she's all hair anyway. And so, <laughs> I mean, literally, I had to really gain new appreciation because I was able to see the different stylistic approaches. They weren't all just the same. The brushy backgrounds that comes into place in the 70s, you know, he begins to do. Yeah. So, you know, they and I think that room was very successful. You know, in part, people love looking, but I, I really think people got a new appreciation themselves for these portraits. And were you thinking about this idea of portraits of society when you installed that room? Yeah, I mean, I knew about what the Met had tried to do. And at one point, actually, Sheena Wagstaff, who then was the chairperson of Modern and Contemporary at the Met, we had sort of talked about, could we collaborate? And, you know, it sort of then went its way and we did our own thing. But absolutely. And that's why the idea of the grid, you know, because we looked at when the show was done at the Whitney in 79, Andy chose this, it was called Billy Baldwin Brown. And the walls were painted this color, and so we didn't use the brown. We did some tests. We came up with a different color, but it was really much in, in keeping. Now, and they had them installed in pairs that Andy had designed. And we just, I don't know, I, we thought not to do that, but to kind of right. do the idea of what yeah. would be the portrait of society. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, it was incredibly effective. Uh, I, I, we I, love that room. We love love that, room. room. <laughs> that room, um, I gave several tours of the exhibition. Uh, Donna asked me to, uh, Susan Hess, who was chairman of the board at that point, had a group. Um, Bank of America had a couple of groups. And I couldn't get people to leave the portraits room. It was on the ground floor. And someone from the museum would say, Bob, you've used up 45 minutes of your hour. But people still wanted more and more stories behind how each of these portraits came to be. And, uh, you know, again, the variety is amazing and, and the stories are interesting. And we call this little presentation at Vito's Gallery popping the question because uh, that's what Andy, uh, if I would say to Andy, I had dinner with Lily Auchincloss last night who was a MoMA trustee and a big patron of the arts. He'd say, did you pop the question? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it was like, no, Andy, I didn't pop the question. She already said she doesn't want her, she doesn't want to look at herself 40 by 40 in bright <laughs> colors. Uh, you know, she was an old wasp. And, but I think the portraits from the beginning with uh, Dominic Domenil, that's interesting, the Man Ray thing, because Andy collected Man Ray mm-hmm. photographs. Fred Hughes, it was really the, the, as a business, the commission portraits began with Andy hiring Fred Hughes, who was a young, Texan, kind of a dandy with a great eye, and it was the protege of Jean and Dominique Jimenez. And he had uh, worked for, after he graduated Rice University, he went to work for Yola's Gallery, which was the Surrealist Gallery in Paris, and Andy hired him at age 27. And he really strategized and thought, let's start with Dominique and her curator because she's impeccably serious in art world terms. And then next came Governor Nelson Rockefeller and Happy Rockefeller. And um, it sort of took off from there. Then Fred focused on Paris and again started right at the top with Yves Saint Laurent, Helene Rochas, who's in this show, Sarah Schlumberger. And it's, you know, Fred saw how you build momentum. 
And then I came along and Andy said, Bob's great because he can talk to anyone and he can sell a lot of portraits. And so even though I was editor of interview, I was in effect paying my own salary because the portraits really did keep interview and the video projects going, which were not profitable until really like the early 80s. And so we were, you know, under pressure to sell. But we did get a commission, which came in handy because Andy kept salaries pretty low to give you more incentives to sell art. He was he was a good businessman. He believed in business art, and he he was good at it. So I work for the Warhol Foundation. I've never worked for Andy, but I love to hear you talk a little bit about what Andy was like as a boss. And I hear you talking about him asking you to pop the question and yeah. push sales. Did he apply any pressure, and was was he really pushing you? Andy, or how, Andy, how did he work Andy would call, as um, a boss? Andy would talk to Pat Hackett first in the morning and dictate his diaries. Then he would usually call me to see what I did the night before, or even if we were together, I usually stayed out later in those days. But it would be like, oh, I saw you talking to Calvin Klein at Studio 54 last night. Did you sell any ads? <laughs> yeah. And I would be... Hendy, it was three in the morning when I was talking to Calvin. He was like, Bob, that's the best time to sell ads. <laughs> you know, in other words, people are drunk and also agree to anything. But, um, no, you were under pressure for Mandy. And, you know, but I, I, every so often they'd say, Andy, you're making so much money. You're really raking it in. You know, he said, I got to bring home the bacon. I have so many mouths to feed. I'd say, you know, why don't you give yourself a break and give me a break too? And all of us, I mean, we don't, do we have to go to six parties every night to sell, you know? And, but Andy also was going to six parties every night to record. John Richardson called him the exterminating recorder. When I said, would say to Andy, you know, you're, you're making so much money. He'd say, Bob, did you ever hear of Chelichev? And I'd say, yes, I heard of Chelichev. Chelichev was a surrealist, a sort of late surrealist, who in the 1940s, early 50s in New York, uh, did a lot of society portraits. He had a famous painting at MoMA, one of their most popular of a tr- tr- uh, sort of surrealist tree. And I, he said, yeah, I heard Chelichev. And Andy said, well, you know, everyone had their portrait by Chelichev. And then one day, nobody wanted a Chelichev portrait. That could happen to me. So you got to sell them wow. fast, Bob. You know, <laughs> yeah, and so how much did they cost? They cost twenty five thousand dollars for one panel, and then fifteen for each additional. They had started out at five thousand when he did like Dominique Germanil, uh for the second port panel, but they went up to fifteen thousand by nineteen seventy. Most people had two; quite a few had four, which would be seventy thousand. Above that, we, you started getting a discount. Um, my favorite client was Diana Ross because um, she had portraits of herself and her three daughters done, and her bill was a couple of hundred thousand dollars. And I said, wait till I send the invoice. She said, no, I don't want an invoice. I'm going to write a check right now. So that was great because you'd be surprised at people who took a long time to pay. Yeah. And, you know, it, 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 it was... Um, just working at the factory, I mean, it was like the, 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 the people who passed through, the people who came for lunch, the people who came to look at art. It was, you know, I always said I never had to social climb. I landed on Mount Olympus in Andy's helicopter because it was, you know, one day it was Mick Jagger. The next day it was the Chinese ambassador with the Iranian ambassador. The next day it was, uh, Bob Wilson, you know, or Cy Twombly. 
And actually, most days it was all those people mixed together with a lot of male and female models so that everyone kept coming back. (laughs) (laughs) So Andy didn't always pop the question. Some of these portraits that he created during this time were not commissioned. They were non-commissioned portraits, and um, some of those were included in your exhibition, Donna. Do you distinguish between the two aesthetically, conceptually, and perhaps uh, how Andy approached them? Well, I mean, if you're referring to like some of the things of the 60s, Marilyn and Liz. You More know. so the 40 by 40s that are all done for yeah. kind of portraits of society. Well, I mean, I guess it's which ones were commissioned and uh, how many of them were non-commissioned from that period of the 70s and 80s. I mean, obviously, you've got Mao from 72. 72. 72. And... The drag queens weren't commissioned. Well, the drag queens... I was, I was thinking though. about the drag queens a lot because... We had a lot of discussion about the drag, uh, the ladies and gentlemen series, and they were commissioned by an Italian collector who originally wanted Andy to do the Candy Darling and people from the factory, and he did not want to do that. So you were involved. Well, he, no, it was Anselmino of Torino, who is a, a dealer, a protege of Yolas. Right, and you were Luciano involved with Anselmino. source with, and we were in Turin with him, and then we were going to Monte Carlo. And on the car ride on the way back, Anselmino said, I have this great idea. I want you to paint transvestites, but not successful ones that really passes like beautiful women, but ones that have maybe heavy beards coming, you know, five o'clock shadows coming through their makeup. And Andy was like, Bob has a five o'clock shadow. <laughs> I was like, Andy, I'm not posting. Isn't there a photograph of you in <laughs> Yeah, the Polaroids all over the site. This went on all the way to Monte Carlo. It went on from the whole next month and on and on and on. Because Andy was terrified of getting involved with transvestites again. Holly Woodlawn would show up and like have a fit because she was only paid $25 a day to appear in the movies. And, you know, Andy had been shot, and the 70s, he was really pulling away from crazy people that were, like, in his films in the 60s. And, you know, was bringing in people like Vincent Fremont and Pat Hackett and Fred Hughes and me and Jed Johnson, who were more like, mid, you know, kids from middle-class families who were not amphetamine addicts or, or very disgruntled heirs and heiresses like Bridget Berlin and Viva. He really didn't want to engage it. So he put all this pressure on me to be the model. And finally, one day, I guess I had one vodka too many at lunch. And I said, okay, Pat Hackett, all the wigs ready. They had the, and I was, Andy kept saying, no, do this with your hands. Do, Bob, you're really a terrible drag queen. I said, because I'm not a drag queen, Andy, <laughs> and I don't want to be. But, so we gave I up that idea. Good. <laughs> we, um, there was a bar called the Gilded Grape on 8th Avenue and 46th Street, which is quite seedy. All the waiters were dressed as sailors with no shirts, and they had a a whole drag queen show. And it was very kind of funny because the black drag queens would do Marilyn Monroe, and the white drag queens would do Diana Ross. (laughs) (laughs) So we would bring some of our decadent, rich Paris friends there like, you know, and their chauffeurs would say, Mr. Schlumberger, please take off all your jewelry before you go into this bar. And so Vincent and I started asking these girls if they would pose for a friend of ours, just take a few Polaroids for $50. They had no idea who Andy was. It, 
it kind of was exploitative if you think about it now. And they, they would sign a release. And the next night they would say to me, tell your friend I do a lot more for $50. <laughs> so it, the whole thing. But I do think those paintings are among Andy's best portraits, best anything, the colors, the amount of texture, they're the most painterly, wouldn't yes. you agree? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that, you know, um, they're in another realm, I think, I in some way, you know, and, you know, what was interesting is that, you know, from the perspective of, you know, 2016 or whenever we were, you know, in the midst of working on it, came this question of ladies and gentlemen, who are the ladies and gentlemen? Because they're anonymous. And this is where, you know, it's a different, it's a different mm -hmm. time. And of course, you know, one of them was Marsha P. Johnson, mm -hmm. who's a major figure in, in the Stonewall Rebellion and gay rights. And, you know, so we had a lot of conversation about ladies and gentlemen with the names, you know, par parenthetically. Um, and they're, uh, and they are the few people of color that Andy painted. They're really not that many. And, you know, so we, we try to be very sensitive about this body of work. Um, but the colors in them, in fact, Glenn Ligon wrote for the catalog and he wrote particularly about that group. Um, you know, and as a painter talking about them, the painterly quality. And I think there's that period from when Mao, when he does Mao in 73, where he begins to use the mop to have expressivity, things really change in that period after the sixties. I mean, it's in some of the prints where you see some of that and the color and stuff. But, you know, the, but the portraits at that time, really, uh, ladies and gentlemen, of course, Mao, become way more expressive. Yes. Um, and one thing I just wanted to add when you were talking about, you know, bring home the bacon, you know, I think the other thing that's important to remember is that m much of the work that he was making in the 70s and the 80s wasn't highly commercial. So these, this also allowed him to continue to have some of these explorations into like hammer and sickle, skulls, the shadows. I think some of the most extraordinary works that he made, um, in the seventies and into the eighties, you know, and because people want it, they want a Campbell soup can. And, you know, I did an inter two interviews with him in 86 in which he says, I asked him about the, I mean, this was like a revelation for me, but I asked him about artist studios he went to and he told me he went to Ad Reinhardt's studio. I, you know, that kind of surprised me in some way, but he said, yeah, you know, I, I looked at those paintings and he said, they all look like the same thing, but they were all complicated underneath. And it linked with what he talked about with the Campbell soup cans, because he said people just want a soup can. But if you think about like the great series that MoMA has, they're all soup cans, but they're all different. Mm -hmm. And I just thought the whole idea of seriality, the conceptual side, like Warhol was so, he, he was so on the history of art and his capacity to really, the sophistication with it, which he saw things are just extraordinary. But I would never in a million years, in one day be great to do like a room with Ad Reinhardt and Warhol. That's a future show. Um, but, you know, really to think of it in that way. And these portraits, you know, you think they all look the same, but they're all complicated underneath. Correct. Yeah. Well, that's a point that, you know, I wanted to make in this presentation that I did uh, for the fair here. But you see in the early 70s, the 72 portrait of Helene Rochas, the 74 portrait of Ricky Van Opel, you see all this gestural, the Yves Saint Laurent portrait, but it's not in the show. 
Andy would said, oh, people in Paris are intellectual. They'll want to, he called it doing the jacooning. Should I do a little jacooning? <laughs> but again, that was, you know, Andy making fun of his own work. And it was one of the great charms of Andy was that he, he was not pretentious in the least. He never hung his own work in his own house. He was always like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, he played the, it kind of fit into his pop art. You know, he, he, Andy understood fame and he liked being famous. And so you need an image. You need a brand. We, we didn't call it brand back then. It was an image. And Andy, the, the image of like the dumb blonde of the art world who didn't know what he was doing. And what I actually say in interviews, I'm just a, a traveling society portrait painter. And I follow my hairdresser, Fred Hughes. He tells me what to do, yeah. you know. But again, you can see the work. It's very serious. And, and the, he did tailor the look of each portrait, the style of each portrait to the client. So Giorgio Armani has diamond dust in, in the, in the silk screen, but very little diamond dust. Because he was, his whole personality, his whole fashion mode was very restrained. And, um, now, you know, in the key pairing, that... you see like almost this electric effect in the way Andy played with the colors. And, and many of the artists are done in black and white. That's, that's interesting. It, 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 that's yeah. interesting because you have, you know, you have, uh, I think Boyce was black Michael and white. Heiser, um, Peter Halley, um, uh, Maplethorpe, Maplethorpe um, the, the, the Herring with his boyfriend, yeah. Juan. There, well, the, I, I the don't one know, here I, is not black and white. It's, this it, one it is not black and white, but the one we had in the show was, yeah. and Stephen Sprouse I, is in black and white. I think white. Boyce was in black and white. Well, the thing I was curious about is he also did a diamond dust Joseph Boyce, which, I, I mean, I that's kind of mind-boggling because it's the complete antithesis of the sort of the politics of Boyce to do him in a capitalist, well, that's the way I read it. And I, I don't know how that – do you know about that at all? No, I didn't. But, I mean, I think that it somehow relates also to boys, you know, work being uh, – what do you call it? Uh, Vaseline and uh, ah, felt. So the, materi- the materiality. Ah, so the materiality. You mean, I mean, he and yeah, boys okay. were an odd combination. Their conversation was difficult because boys' English wasn't very uh, extensive. And Andy kept saying, oh, your daughter's so beautiful, she should be a model, which was like <laughs> – you think the last thing boys wanted for his daughter, but uh, you know somehow it all worked, and um, the, you know um, a- Andy just had this endless curiosity about people and all kinds of people. I mean, he would you know have conversations with the elevator man. He would even ask them what he should paint. Um, and he, he actually was curious. He, he was like a pollster, like who was trying to figure out what made human beings tick and like what was, what was everything about? That's why he wrote the philosophy of Andy Warhol. He had been asked many times already by the early seventies to write an autobiography and he always said no automatically. And when this literary agent came up to Andy, me, and Vincent Fremont at a cocktail party in Park Avenue, and she said, hi, I'm Roz Cole, and I'm a literary agent. You know what you should do, Andy Warhol? You should write your philosophy. And Andy immediately turned to me and said, oh, Bob, we have to start it tomorrow morning. (laughs) So that showed me that he considered himself, in some sense, a philosopher, and he would never put that in words, but... He really was asking the big questions, you know, like, what does it all mean, Alfie? It was... It's a great um, book. It, it's, a, it's a great it's book. It's a great book. I've always thought that, that, that Andy was the Mark Twain 
of our time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I say the Yogi Berra, but Mark Twain works too. <laughs> well, it could be the Yogi, Be- Yogi Berra meets Mark Twain. Yeah. Yeah. But because there's a sort of homespun, there's truths yes. in the cliches. Yeah. And, and just one other thing I wanted to add, which is, you know, there's so much discussion about Warhol and business and all of that. And, you know, I do think that what is so important with artists like Warhol is the class issues. You know, he was from a working class immigrant family. Poverty stricken. Poverty stricken. His father worked in the mines. Father died relatively young. When Andy was 12. Uh, So I, I think, you know, that was a motivator. I think he probably thought he would, he could run out of money at any time. It's like the Chittlechev thing. And so, you know, and I think that's a huge aspect of his understanding of things too, of the world, of the fascination with moneyed people, with all the elevator man, you know, and even the deadpan allows you an access because it's not about projecting who you are. You're interested in who the other person is. And I think that goes with the portraiture itself in being tuned in to certain aspects of an individual. Their Saatchi portrait that we had is was absolutely ghostly because, you know, given that he was murdered, and I can't remember... It, it well, was, several people said today about the one in the show here, uh, which is black and white, oh, he looks so somber, he looks so gloomy, Andy must have been foreseeing his murder. You know, and I'm like, well, no. no. Yeah. But, 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 that, but yet, somehow... You know, I thought, well, there's something to be... I mean, he does look gloomy and severe, but I think Versace kind of, like, wanted it to look that way. I'm not sure. I wasn't there when he was actually taking the Polaroids. You touched on something here and talking about Andy's openness to ideas and always seeking input. To what degree did the subjects influence the the final results of the paintings? And and were they dictating color choices or compositions? Well, I think their most influence, you know, the largest influence came during the actual sitting when Andy was taking the Polaroids. You know, there were some clients who kept saying, oh, I don't like it. I don't like it. And they would take another roll, another roll. And, you know, but Andy would say, oh, oh, I like this one. What do you think of this one? What do you think of that one? And he would only send out two or three of the hundred that might have been taken to be made into uh, negatives and then silk screens. But, yeah, I mean, he would say to clients, I mean, he did my portrait and he said, I'm going to do it in blue and green because I know you like blue and green. And I said, great. I mean, I didn't pay for it. It was a... <laughs> You know, Andy very rarely made a gift of a portrait. Jed Johnson was really, I think, one of the only ones, his boyfriend. But in my case, I had arranged for an Italian jeweler called Count Caramati de Caramati to have his wife painted and his four-year-old boy. And uh, it was $110,000, the bill. And they gave Andy uh, a quite a large-size cut emerald from Colombia, you know, that wasn't set. So Andy said, well, Bob, I can't give you 20% of the emerald, so I'll give you, you know, I'll do your portrait because I owe you $22,000 and you're getting a $3,000 discount. So I said, I don't want, I'd rather have the cash, Andy. (laughs) And then I went home that night and I thought, are you crazy, Bob? You know, so I went back and said, okay, Andy, you can do my portrait. And that's when he said, well, uh, do you want me to make it blue and green? I said, yes, that would be great. And that's what he did. He made me take off my glasses. So I look 14, but he was, you know, he did flatter people. He, he want, there, there were some people who could, Morella Ranielli was very hard to please. 
she kept saying her neck was too long, and Andy kept saying to Fred Hughes, but she's famous for her long neck. And finally, on the third try, he got it right. Johnny and Yelly sent his back, because Andy had removed all his wrinkles and, uh, you know, made him look smooth. And he liked his weather-beaten face, so we had to do that one over. But... um yeah, it, 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 commission portraits are about, you have to, you, yes. the client is in control. I mean, that, that's Except part of it. Except for the dimensions. Except for the dimensions. But, you know, most people liked the 40 by 40. There, in some cases, a few people wanted larger or a little smaller, but. Take us inside the factory, and you sat for Andy, but what, what was that atmosphere like? Was, was there music playing? Was Andy socializing? Were other people around? How did this unfold for the various subjects, and were some of them performing? Were some of them difficult to deal with? Uh, as gossipy as you I want. mean, the factory was an <laughs> office. Uh, one part of it was the interview office, yeah. so we had like about 10 people working there, getting the next issue ready, people typing up transcripts. In the front reception area, Bridget Berlin was sort of pretending to type Andy's <laughs> tapes from the night before, which were in, unintelligible, because when you tr- photograph eight people in a restaurant, you know, and generally, and we very often had lunches, the factory at 860 Broadway, where we were from 74 until 83, um, and where I worked, um, had a, the, in the corner, there was a wood paneled, library sort of thing that had the previous tenant had brought over from England. So we made it our dining room. We had a little Art Deco furniture, Bugatti furniture. And we would have like these lunches that were very free form. But Fred and I mainly invited people spur of the moment a lot. Although or if we knew somebody from Europe was coming, we wanted to show, you know, get their friend, New York friends together. But it was like, a little bit random, and people like that because they'd see people they didn't know or they wouldn't see any place else. And, you know, we just would serve white wine, red wine, nothing fancy, tuna and egg salad sandwiches, and uh, people loved it. But the portrait clients might come to the lunch, and then after they've had a few glasses of wine, they'd pose after lunch. At some point, Andy started hiring Ronnie Catron's girlfriend, Gigi Williams, who is a professional makeup artist, to do the makeup and Andy started asking the ladies to take off their tops and he would rack a sheet you know and bare their shoulders he they would be wrapped in a sheet and then uh, Gigi would do this kind of kabuki like makeup I personally think they lost a little something when he switched to that kind of method um, because a sameness crept in um, like Helene Rochas would have never had her Yves Saint Laurent feathered uh, mm-hmm. collar that was became part of the process. It became a little more formulaic as it went on. When I was leaving, there was a dealer in Miami who was really like, Andy, we'd go to Miami, we'd be at the Fontainebleau or wherever they, we, we were staying, and these ladies would be brought in one after another, like every two hours, you know, on the second hour. And it was like, Andy didn't even get to have any sense of who they were. And when you see the portraits of like a Lynn Wyatt or a Carolina Herrera, they're really strong because Andy knew those women. He sat next to them at dinners. They, you know, he made jokes with them. 
You know, I think they lost something when yeah. this kind of uh, f- literally factory-like approach took hold. And the same thing happened in Europe with Bruno Bischofberger. Andy would go on these two or three-day tours of Germany doing Wives of Industrialists, yeah. whose names he wouldn't even remember when he came, if he ever learned them in the first place. I, I think that's an interesting segue to a question for Donna. Um, you curated an exhibition at the Parish Museum called Face Value. And included in that exhibition were a couple of commissioned portraits. Um, as Bob is explaining, there there were a lot of these people coming in and commissioning portraits. And at the time, Warhol passed away. There wasn't always records and documentations to identify who they were. And yet, paintings were left with the estate and then the foundation. And you included some of these in that exhibition. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how these paintings operate, because they're still powerful works of art, and they operate at a certain level, even when you don't know the subject is. You're not thinking about Versace and whether this, you know, Andy foreshadowed his death, but you are thinking about some other things. So talk a little about that exhibition and how these operated in that exhibition. So that was an exhibition that happened in 95, a long time ago, and it was really inspired to a certain extent by the resurgence of interest at that time amongst a, lo- a, a younger generation of artists actually working in portraiture. So whether it was, you know, a little bit later with, say, Cindy Sherman, it was Chuck Close, Lyle Ashton Harris, Tony Orsler was doing his projected portraits, personality portraits. So, you know, it was a very much key looking at that moment. And then the parish has... Uh, 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 the estate of William Merritt Chase. So there was a group of historical portraits. So the exhibition went from late 19th century right up to the present at that time. And I wanted to include Warhol, but I wanted to do something a little bit different. And I reached out, I think it was to Vincent at the time, Vincent Fremont. And I said, you know, do you have any portraits of like people that you don't know who they are? And, um, and they did. And so I included several, um, I think there was women and men, and they couldn't identify. They must have been commissioned, and then the people either, they obviously didn't want them because they were still there, or they were extras, I don't know. It was interesting to see, like, what happens, because then I think you see them on just a purely formal level. Because when you're looking at it, if it's, you know, Mick Jagger or Armani or whomever, you can't just, you can't forget that, you know, they are. And it's why, by the way, a lot of people don't like to buy portraits, because... Not everybody wants to look at people other than themselves, let's say, um, even self-portraits, you know, unless they're done in Purdue. Like we, I had Felix Gonzalez Torres, one of his incredible portraits that he would do, you know, where he would gather facts about people and then it would be done as an installation. So it was portraiture, but it was fascinating. And to some extent, they did have that flat quality to them, that formula. The unknown people, because they were... The unknown ones are the more the later ones. The, the la- these were later later ones, and so, but it was fascinating to see them, you know, amongst you know Robert Henry and William Merritt Chase, because you know the thing about Warhol, of course, he he is part of that incredible trajectory, and I, you know, again, I can't think of any other artist who made portraiture like okay, yeah, and you know, I just want to say there's a great. I love, and I don't know if it's in the philosophy, but, you know, because of Warhol emerging, you know, he comes to New York in 49, which is the same year that Jackson Pollock is in Life magazine as, is he the greatest American artist? It was called Jack the Dripper. And so, (laughs) you know, he, he leaves Pittsburgh at that time. And so Warhol's formative years in New York are really the heyday of abstract expressionism where, you know, if you were a figurative artist, you were like, 
this side. If you're an abstract artist, you were this side. I mean, it, it was very clear delineation. But he made this statement, which I just think was a liberating for a whole new generation of artists. He says, I don't understand why you can't be an abstract painter one day and a portraitist the next day. Yeah. And, you know, he was breaking a, you know, breaking through something and saying, who determines this? And, you know, that to me is like the condition of ever since 60s forward. I mean, who thinks about you should be limited in what you make as an artist? So I always love that statement. I, th- I think in many ways it's often lost to that. That's really one of Warhol's powers is the, the freedom and liberty he's given generations since to define what it means to be an artist for themselves and not to be confined by conventions. Warhol is... Uh, go I just want to add something. To, something Andy would say very frequently even, oh, how can I make an abstract painting that's not really abstract? And that's why he did camouflage. Camouflage was, a, you know, a, a depiction of military garb, but it looked ab- it was abstract. Same thing with the shadows was um, the oxidation paintings. These were all part of uh, him playing with the idea of what's abstract, what's figurative. He was under attack a lot um, for doing. I think by the early seventies, conceptual art was really reigning. And minimalism was considered, like, acceptable. But figurative painting was really out, as Donna said. And society portraits, commissions, was, like, really beyond the pale. But that, in a way, was brave of Andy to just stick to his guns and do it. And he had his vindication in 79, 80, when you had a whole new generation coming out of art schools who said, we want to paint, and we don't care what the intellectual art establishment is saying that, you know, we can't do. And so you had Francesco Clemente, you had Julian Schnabel, Jean-Michel Biscott, Keith Haring, David Solly, Ross Blechner, all of whom were painters, and every each one of them, Eric Fischel, who reinvented painting in their own way. They, it wasn't like they really were could be called all expressionists. And they flocked to the factory, and they flocked to Andy, and it was a vindication that he suddenly was an idol of this younger generation, where his own generation, starting with Jasper Johns, were really aloof, you know, if if not even disapproving. So... Uh, but I think that's, Andy always broke rules. I mean, he broke rules in every which way, you know, and categories. Andy didn't like to be categorized. Um, he didn't want to be put in a, um, any kind of box because he felt everyone should do whatever they want. Yeah. You know, freedom and power uh, of being uh, an artist. Yeah, I, the commission portraits. I think in uh, uh, Donna mentioned the 1979 Whit, uh, Whitney Museum show. Robert Hughes wrote in Time Magazine that Andy embalmed his clients, his subjects, in the back of their limousines. I mean, that's the kind of. But Andy reveled in it. Fred and Hughes and I would say, "Oh, we're going to write a letter to, to the editor of Time Magazine," and Andy would say. No, I got four pages, three color yeah. photos, and we should invite Robert Hughes to lunch yeah. and have a lot of pretty models. Don't don't pay attention to what they say; just measure it in inches. Yeah, right. Right. yeah. Uh, One of the things that struck me in a recent conversation I had with you, Donna, and I certainly related to, is how we're still figuring Andy out, and and we probably never will, is what you said. And having had the privilege of working at the foundation for over two decades, I'm still learning. And I was struck when you said you installed these portraits at your the retrospective you curated, how seeing them in front of you, you learn something new. 
And you talked a little bit about this emotional quality that you saw in some of the works that you hadn't really noticed before. And I, and I do think we live in this digital age and consume so much digitally and seeing artwork in person just is an entirely different experience. So I was really uh, excited to hear you talk about that, standing in, in these paintings and learning something new. So if you could tell us a little bit more about that, I'd, I'd really appreciate it. Well, you know, I mean, when you think about an artist like Warhol, no artist is more reproducible than Warhol. But what gets lost in that is, in fact, the physical encounter with the work. And when, you know, whether it was the portrait of Dominique de Menil or the other portrait in that show is a portrait of Andy's mother, Julia Warhola. And I believe it was done after she died. Yes. And I know from what I understand that Warhol did not go to Pittsburgh for his mother's funeral. And then he made this painting. And it's, it's a, it's a really interesting. It has these squiggly lines. It's very alive in a way, but it's also kind of memento mori at the same time. And you would never experience that in person, mm-hmm. you know, and also the colors, you know, I mean, I'm very proud of the fact that our catalog for the uh, retrospective A to B and back again, we had really great reproductions. They're really high quality, but even then, it's just never the same to be in front of a picture. And, you know, some of the, uh, particularly some of those earlier ones, like there's Eolus, um, you know, they, they do have this, you know, or even like, you know, the one of, um, as we were talking earlier about Versace, which is in gold or the diamond dust or the oxidation, you know, they have a physicality because they're paintings. Yeah. And so you do need to be able to see them in, in person, but, tracking them from 69 up till that end was i don't think that i would have had that it really changed my thinking about the portraits and i had people who said to me i will say oh my god you're going to show those i mean i had a lot of people very negative about the, the commission portraits because they just felt that these were you know he was just doing them for the money and all of that stuff and they read that time magazine article. Yeah, they read the time magazine article but then we had many people who you know who were in that space. And, you know, a lot of it had to do, you know, I was thinking about this portrait of society, you know, question. In some ways, it part of it was a portrait of Andy's world because there are yeah. figures yeah. that were in there that he had, re- you know, that were really part of his story. Yeah. And then, you know, it was such a mixture because we had the sports people and then, you know, the Dolly Parton and, you know, but he did, you know, Judy Garland and Neil Sedaka and all these other characters in there. And so it was just great to be able to see, you know, this variety of people. And it really, the ama- one, the other thing is just to think about all these people that he encountered and that's a good transition to um, the closing questions that I have for you because we're wrapping up with time. And I have three questions I want to ask you, two very light and kind of brief and one a little bit more serious. But in the first, in terms of these characters that, that we keep talking about in these subjects, if Andy were alive today and asked you again to pop the question, who would you uh, reach out to for the sales pitch and why? Uh-huh. Oh God! Um, well, Andy would want me to get Kim Kardashian and put her on the put her on the cover of Interview Magazine. And I'd be saying over my dead body. And uh, oh, I, I don't know. There were so many great people. Um, I wish he could have painted. You still get that commission. Just keep that in mind. Uh, well, <laughs> I think Serena and Samantha Boardman, the sisters. You know, their great grandmother or something who painted was painted by John Singer Sargent. Vanity Fair did a feature at one point of descendants of people who'd been painted by John Singer Sargent and David Seiden, a 
great photographer did a whole costume thing and samantha and serena were part of that so it made me think of that and, and you donna thank you bob thought a lot about that and of course i thought of kim kardashian but it'd be like over my dead body too so um, i would have liked to have seen him do lady gaga oh yes that's a good choice you know she's such a she's such a a, a, she's a great talent she's flamboyant you know in a way she's trading on a certain quality of performative in a conceptual way you know maybe she would have been having the meat dress on or something yeah exactly i think he would have been fascinated by her as a personality yeah, I think much more than Madonna, Lady Gaga, her is really creative, is really, yeah. I think she's sort of a surrealist at heart. She is a surrealist, yeah, yeah I, I agree. And, and I think that's a good uh, choice. My, my vote is Beyonce, so I'll be on the record with that one. I did do a tour, I have to tell you, very quickly, I did a tour for uh, Jay-Z of the exhibition. Oh, terrific. It was funny because Beyonce couldn't come uh, until later in the day, but I had to go to a friend's christmas party and i of course i said i blew off to beyonce and he was like forever in my debt he was like oh my god but it was amazing to walk him through that show he loved the portrait room um he really spent a lot of time but just very quickly the cover of his book has a warhol rorschach exactly which meant i couldn't put it on the cover of my head (laughs) um um, but he said something that was so amazing it's not about the portraitures but we had the mustard race riot painting from the brand horse collection which you know has images of the birmingham protests and uh you know people having dogs after them and and it was a two panel one was the silk screen and the other was a blank panel and we was walking through the show and a woman comes by and she looks at this painting and she says what you know what what is that about the blank and he without missing a beat he says well you could look or you could look away and i just thought wow that is like a really profound comment he really got warhol yeah he talked about warhol through the whole project the other person was virgil abloh we did a video with him because he fashioned himself of a warhol yeah he talked about how warhol had created so it was interesting to hear all of these characters who had taken so much from him. i just had to say that the next light question is really comes from there's something that Peter Sheldahl, the, the critic, uh, once said. He said the most honest thing he ever wrote about an artist was his name on a check when he bought <laughs> bought it. And I thought uh, there's something about that lens. And uh, I would be curious with the 10 works that are in the Vito Schnabel exhibition here that you curated, Bob, if you could take one of them home and live with it and ha- have it in your home, which one would it be and why? And the same question for you, Don. Uh, it would be the Vincente Minnelli, who's uh, Liza Minnelli's father, but was a great MGM director, particularly of musicals like Meet Me in St. Louis and Three Coins in a Fountain. I love that portrait because uh, for me and for others, of course, Andy was the greatest colorist of, of his generation. John Russell of the Times of London wrote in 1970 when Andy had a retrospective at the Tate that Andy was the Matisse of acrylics. And I love... Uh, that portrait of, uh, of Vincente Minnelli, not the way it has four quarters, sort of cantaloupe bouncing off, um, mm. like a tomato red and these two blues. And then it has multicolored outline. Uh, I just think because right. of its colors is the one that I would take home. Blue and green? <laughs> it's not really, yeah, well, there's the two, the two blue greens, yeah. yeah. And you, Donna? I would take home the one of Kimiko Powers. 
Um, she is, she's just an elegant woman. They were amazing collectors. John Powers, her husband. I met Kimiko some number of years back. You know, she's a very beautiful woman. And there's just something very elegant about that painting. I mean, he's captured something about her elegance and, and simplicity. And simplicity. It's just, it's just very beautiful. So I was very happy to see that. We had, we had a Kimiko Powers in the, in the Whitney show as well. And yeah, that would be it. And if there's an empty spot on that wall. Yeah. There you go. You know what happened. So I, I would, I would take the portrait of Keith and Juan. Uh, yeah. and so it's interesting. None of us had the same, uh, answers here. That's one of my favorites in the show. It's stunning. It really is. So in conclusion, I would really like to just frame a question, which is a bit larger. Warhol is often seen as a mirror of his times and reflected the society in which he lived and the world in which we lived and in many ways foreshadowed the world in which we're living now today. So imagining this Portraits of Society exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum, which is you know expansive and includes all of the subjects that he painted, what do you think that reflects about the time Warhol lived and what do you think it says today? Maybe we'll start with you, Donna, this time. Well, I think that, you know, it talks about absolutely talks about this cult of personality and celebrity. It's pre-digital, obviously. But I think I said at one point when we were conceptualizing the room, we thought a lot about Facebook and that it was kind of a Facebook of its time. So sports stars as celebrities, maybe they didn't sell, but it was absolutely, you know, the star power of the sports figure. You know, some of them to me are about Warhol's world or the art world, you know, the artists that are there. Also, the kind of signature quality, like that's why the Dolly Parton is so interesting because she's all hair and it is her calling card to a certain extent. So I think it says a lot. And then there are things that are not there. There are limitations in some ways. There are very few people of color that are there. It's a relatively white, but not totally. But that's very much the time. So I think there are things there that would be relevant today. And then there are aspects of it that, you know, we would see as deficiencies. Mm -hmm. But that that's like a given in a way, you know. I mean, that's just world changes in good ways and transitional ways that are important. So I think there's still tremendous relevance. And, you know, it does make me think it would be really interesting. And the catalog resume does have all the portraits in it. I Now that my, my old pal, David Breslin, is the new head of modern and contemporary the Met might have to start strategizing. <laughs> yeah. Um, if enough time passes, you know, you have to do those things. But it would be kind of fascinating I think to actually is. really do it, but to do it on a massive scale. Agreed. So I got to talk to David about this. Yeah. I mean, they got to make get that done, Donna. Yeah. So get that done. They should launch the new building with it. Oh my God! Could you imagine? Yeah. And same question for you, Bob. Well, I, you know, I think all of Andy's work is very much about fame. And it's about this understanding, as he said, in 1963, that in the future everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. That's kind of come true with social media. But having your portrait done by Andy Warhol made you, in a certain sense, famous. And Andy's work also was about making icons. I, I see Andy in in some ways as a making religious art for a secular time. Mm. And um, starting with Elvis... Marilyn, Jackie, and Liz Taylor. These are our secular saints. People see Elvis in parking lots like Catholics saw, uh, uh, you know, the Virgin Mary at Lourdes. Yeah, right. <laughs> These were also martyrs. They were martyrs to fame. They were, they were devoured by their fame. I think when you look at all these portraits, 
there in each one in a sense is Andy making people into icons. But icons can mean today celebrity, but icons go back to Greece and Byzantine art. And Andy, it's important to remember, was not Roman Catholic, but Eastern Rite Catholic. And the church he went to in Pittsburgh with his mother, three masses on Sunday, long masses, was at the St. John Christosomon Greek Russian Catholic Church. And there was the iconostasis, the grid of saints all butting up against each other with gold leaf backgrounds. And you say, there's where Andy's portraits came from. I think uh, they are still relevant today because, you know, once you turn something into an icon, it has a kind of permanence. It's like yeah. saying someone's a legend. And, and even things like the hammer and sickle, the dollar signs, those are objects of worship, which is what... You know, even Campbell's soup, you could argue, is an object of worship. It sounds that, that's like that's what I take away from I, it. I love that, and, and those are two really insightful responses. And, and thank you for that. It sounds like um, Andy, Saint Andy is the patron saint of contemporary art, is what you're saying, Bob. Well, his uh, influence is everywhere still. Is. I mean, what do you really say, Donna? I mean, he's, he's an artist born in the 20th and incredibly relevant in the 21st. Andy single-handedly legitimized photography as. With the silk screens and his, the cues, people say, it's, I remember he wanted to trade portraits with Dali and his, Dali's very tough wife, Gala, Gala would say, no trade oil painting for photographs. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you both for sharing so generously with us today. And thank you everyone for being here. And thank you to everyone at The Independent and especially Bill and Elizabeth. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Previously Unknown, a podcast produced by Independent New York. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to support the show, you can visit our website, independenthq.com, or find us on Instagram at independenthq. 